up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Why are so many teenagers struggling with anxiety, and what can parents do to help? They definitely um, need to be understanding, being able to be supportive of your kids, but also not allowing them to just avoid things. Some women who deliver babies at Upstate's Family Birth Center are choosing to use laughing gas to reduce the pain of childbirth. It gives them a sense of control over their labor and how they can control that, that pain or that anxiety through labor. Even though babies should be put to sleep on their backs, an important part of their development calls for daily tummy time. By placing the baby on, the, on their tummies, they can see what's around them and that motivates them to want to explore and interact and that prompts learning. We'll learn about all that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse. But first, the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear how laughing gas is reducing the pain of childbirth for women at Upstate's Family Birth Center. Then we'll look at the role of tummy time in an infant's development. But first, what's going on with teenagers? The rate of anxiety among teens is on the rise. Why are more teenagers than ever suffering from severe anxiety? That was the title of an article in the New York Times Magazine recently. So here to address that subject is Upstate licensed clinical psychologist and assistant clinical professor, Dr. Nancy Goodman. She's from the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So can you help us understand the difference between what's normal and what's a clinical disorder in terms of anxiety? Sure, so everyone gets nervous and worried sometimes and that's a normal feeling. When it rises to the level of a diagnosis, it's when it impacts on day-to-day -day functioning for someone. So they cannot perform what would be normal functions in their life. So just getting out of bed in the morning kind of functions? Or? That or being able to complete tasks that they would normally do or, or interact. Concentrate or? Concentrate or interact with people the way they were doing. Um, so all different levels of functioning. Okay. Um, let's talk a little about how anxiety looks in um, children, um, teens, older, older people. It changes across the lifespan, right? Sure. So um, there are developmental changes in what would be considered anxiety. Um, you might see a young child be very afraid of leaving their parent and separating. Again, there's a normative end of that, and then it can become pathological when it continues on and on in, let's say, preschool. Most of the time, there's not separation issues as children get older, but they may have trouble with other things like being able to be in crowds or they may be afraid of presenting in classes. So it's all anxiety, but the way it manifests itself changes across the lifespan. So if, if you have anxiety as a child, is this something you'll outgrow or will you always have that to sort of deal with? Um, my feeling is is that it's always an issue, um, and you may have periods where it waxes and wanes. So you may reach a point where you're in a comfortable place, and it doesn't demonstrate itself as much, and then there's a change in your life in some way, maybe starting high school or going away to college, and then you may have problems again. 
So, Do you see where people have never had an issue with anxiety and they get into their, I don't know, 50s, 60s, older age, and then it becomes to the surface? Or? Um, I, I, I work primarily with children and adolescents, so okay. I don't see too many adults, but um, it's unusual for it to just come up in a later point unless there's some unusual stress like the loss of someone perhaps or some other major life event. Hmm. But, it, but it definitely, um, if you find that someone says all of a sudden their child is anxious, the, there were probably precursors along the way that maybe didn't rise to the level that someone sought help. So like symptoms or? Yeah, or just it was, it was a kid that you always knew needed extra support and help in certain situations. What does anxiety look like um, to a parent? I mean, how would you know that your child has this going on? Are there signs and symptoms to be looking for? Well, well, there can be. So, um, you know, someone who maybe has trouble doing things more independently for their age, um, someone maybe who doesn't want to um, interact with other people in a way that you would expect for their age. Maybe if it's really having a lot of problems, you might see disruption in sleep and appetite. Um, and certainly concentration can have an impact, be impacted by anxiety. Does the person who's suffering from the anxiety know that they've got this going on? Are there symptoms that they can feel? Or? Yep. So, so physiologically, sometimes there are reactions. Sometimes people don't even realize that they're feeling anxiety, but they know that their stomach's upset or they may feel their heart racing. Um, people who have panic episodes sometimes feel like they're having a heart attack or they can't breathe. Um, so, and they don't always connect it up with it, with being anxious. So are panic attacks part of anxiety? Yes, they are. Oh, they are. are. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Um, so does th- starting therapy early um, help mediate this? or it's, It certainly can and should. Um, what I always tell my, my patients when they come in, because sometimes we'll run a course of treatment and things will get better, um, and then um, we'll stop. But I say that it can come back. So you can learn skills. You learn to recognize it, um, but there may be points where you want to return because you need um, to have uh, another course of treatment. So how early do you start therapy? Um, I start seeing kids um, around five, Um, and the younger they are, the more you're going to work closely hand-in-hand with the parents, obviously, because um, kids can only use skills up to a certain point when they're younger, and parents have to learn ways to help reinforce that. Okay. Now, I know there are um, medications for anxiety. Are children taking medications for anxiety? They, they are. Um, I'm not a prescriber. I'm a psychologist. But we, I work closely with some of the psychiatrists in our department, as well as pediatricians who will prescribe medication for children. And is that, do you see that that's helpful? It is. Um, I think the research shows that in conjunction, that therapy and medication together is the most helpful. But um, it's definitely can... What I consider it is like lowering the volume on the anxiety. When the anxiety is at a 10 out of 10, it's very hard to use the skills that we might work on, but the medication may lower it to like a 7, and then maybe they can try some of the things that are so difficult to do. So tell me what the therapy is like. Are you um, helping uh, people recognize, I don't know, ways to sort of calm themselves before? So that's definitely part of it, so learning some strategies to be able to Um, reduce the anxiety through um, breathing and visualization and relaxation techniques. Um, 
it, it also involves what's really hard, which is exposing yourself to a situation that's anxiety producing. So um, the example I often give to kids in my office is um, sometimes there are people who are afraid of the elevator to get to my office. And so um, what they want to do, they think they're going to get stuck and they think they're never going to get out. Those are their thoughts. And then what they want to do is take the stairs and what they need to do is learn to take the elevator that it's, they think it's dangerous. It's like there's a false alarm going off in their head. And they realize after exposure that it really is a safe thing, but, it's, but they want to avoid it. That's what anxiety makes you want to do is the opposite of what you need to do to treat it. So treating it might be learning how to conquer that fear. Exactly. Yep. Interesting. Uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with licensed clinical psychologist and Upstate assistant clinical professor, Dr. Nancy Goodman. Um, now, with adolescents today, social media is a, a huge part of many adolescent lives. Is that contributing to anxiety in any way? I think it probably is um, in, in ways that are sometimes hard to even quantify. So I think there's a lot of self-comparisons that's going on, on with teens looking to see what's going on with their friends. People represent themselves sometimes in ways online that are not necessarily truthful, but it can make someone who's self-conscious or feels isolated, more isolated. They're not being invited, they're not included, and so I think it can contribute to someone who's, let's say, socially anxious, feeling like, oh, well, they're all doing this without me. That makes me even more uncomfortable. Um, and there's also an online presence for teens, I think, in terms of talking about these issues. So I know some of the kids that I've seen who are a school avoidant, there's a lot of kids online talking about um, how they don't go to school either and how maybe you can be homeschooled. So I think there's a whole um, culture that is fostering some of their thoughts about not conquering the fear of, of moving out, if that makes sense. So do you counsel... Um avoiding social media or I mean it's just so prevalent it seems like it'd be hard to it is hard um, sometimes restricting a little bit in the article that you mentioned they talked about you know not having the phone on all the time because some kids you know sleep next to the phone and they're checking all the time so being able to maybe put some boundaries around it with parents help to put it away at night um, I think it's almost impossible to have no contact with it. Wow. Well, I also wanted to ask you about how anxiety is affecting schools. Yeah. So um, I think a lot of schools are finding that they're being asked to develop plans to help kids deal with anxiety. There's a lot of school refusal, um, test anxiety, and there's um, something called a 504 plan that some schools develop, well, schools can develop for kids um, it's an accommodation plan. It's not special education, but if you have a lifelong problem you can have that are affecting you in school, it can, they can have accommodations in the school setting, um, including things like having tests in a separate location, extended time on testing. Um, you know, if you're nervous being in the hallway with a lot of kids, getting to leave your class a little earlier, those kind of things. Um, so I think there's a lot of pressure on schools to try and find ways to help these kids feel more comfortable in the school setting. Are those accommodations helpful? So, you know, up to a point, um, it's helpful. So I think for some kids who are terrified, and I think if you don't have anxiety, you don't know how bad it can feel. Um, you truly feel like you are in danger when you are not in danger. 
Um, so being able to find some ways to get them in the building and to feel comfortable. But it also can be a crutch that maybe they don't need, and it isn't necessarily something that they're going to be able to take with them forever. So learning to cope with those problems is really what you want. Okay. All right. Well, um, do you have some advice for parents who have anxious children? What would you say to Well, I think it's a balancing act. Um, And so they definitely um, need to be understanding to be able to validate how their kids feel. So not to say, I think um, when I grew up and um, people from another generation, there was more of a, you know, kind of suck it up and deal with it. I think being able to be supportive of your kids, but also not allowing them to just avoid things. It's tricky. I, I tell parents it's kind of like if you had a kid who was afraid to swim, you wouldn't drop them in the deep end and just say swim, but you also wouldn't say to them, oh, you don't need to swim. We're not going to even learn how to swim. You'd probably start in the shallow end and get them some lessons and teach them how to put their face in the water with the idea that eventually they're going to go in the deep end. Building up to it. Yes, exactly. Learning how to do it, giving yep. them the skills to do it. Absolutely, yep. All right. Um, And again, like we talked at the beginning, uh, the difference between what's normal and what's a clinical disorder. If you have a child who is having, it's impacting their life Mm -hmm. and their ability to, you know, get through the day. Mm -hmm. um, Is it time for a child psychologist or at least a visit to the pediatrician? Yeah, I would definitely recommend that. Um, The pediatrician is a good place to start. And they usually have contacts with therapists in town to make referrals if they think it's warranted. Do you see, um, you mentioned like you start as young as like five years old. Mm-hmm. So are there are daycare centers sort of dialed into this as well? Are um, they recognizing? Yeah, I think so. I think there's an expectation of certain fears, like I said before, developmentally. So daycare centers and um, certainly kindergarten teachers recognize that certain fears are expected at that age. But I, I do think that when things persist and kids are not improving, that... Um, a referral to either the pediatricians or a therapist in town is definitely warranted. Um, in the heat of the moment, if if a kid's having sort of an anxiety attack, mm-hmm. um, what's sort of the best response for a parent? Um, even my own daughter had some issues with anxiety when she was going through school, and she recently, interestingly, wrote an essay for a college class that she had about um, unofficial accommodations she received from a sixth-grade math teacher to start her tests early, And she really liked that. It reduced her anxiety tremendously. But then when she moved into seventh grade, she expected to be able to do these things again. And the teacher there was very taken aback and said, no, we don't don't do that. And she said um, that one of the things she realized at the end was that um, it's better to deal directly with these struggles rather than to be given accommodations for it that you learn need to learn to make your own mistakes and that that would help you in the long run. I thought it was a good observation. So I think what parents sometimes want to do is fix the problem and probably what you need to do is just kind of be there with them and say I know you're worried, um, we can get through this, maybe do some deep breathing with them um, and try and understand what it is that's making them feel so panicky if you can do that. Well, it's got to be it's got to be a tricky thing to deal with. Yes, absolutely. So, absolutely. I appreciate you being here to talk about this. Of course. Um, my guest has been Upstate psychologist Nancy Goodman. Uh, I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Next up, would you use laughing gas to reduce the pain of childbirth? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Moms giving birth at Upstate University Hospital's Family Birth Center now have the option of using nitrous oxide to help control labor pain. With me today to talk about this is Lori Fegley, a labor and delivery nurse manager from the community campus. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Amber. So how does this work? What is nitrous oxide? So nitrous oxide is a safe, non-invasive method. It's a gas that can help with pain relief, and it also helps to decrease anxiety of moms who are in labor. Um, it doesn't necessarily take the pain away, um, but it does give this sense of euphoria and relaxation to our moms, so they're able to concentrate through their contractions, kind of stay with it, and be alert. It's uh, laughing gas? It's laughing gas, The yeah. same thing that some dentists um, Similar to what the dentist's office uses, except the concentration is a 50-50 mix, so it's less nitrous. Um, what you typically see in an office setting for a dental procedure is a 70-30 mix, so it's more nitrous oxide. Oh, okay. So it d doesn't put you to sleep, it just... Will not put you to sleep. It may make you kind of not care about the pain, <laughs> kind of disassociate from the pain. Okay. All right. So it's um, being a gas, does it come through a mask over your nose and mouth or how does... Yeah, so how mom will use this when she's in the hospital is it's connected to um, a rolling cart and there's a gas um, the cylinder cylinder that has the nitrous and then there's also a cylinder that has the oxygen. It's preset to deliver a 50-50 mix and mom inhales this through tubing and mask that are attached to this unit. So she inhales through it and exhales through it. And the reason why she exhales through it as well is that so that that nitrous doesn't go in the air and does not get breathed in by healthcare providers or support people who might be with mom while she's in labor. Oh, good point. So it's cleaned out of the air in a sense through a scavenging system. And um, is it is it a mask that uh, has like a strap to your face or how does... No how strap. Do you... We don't want mom's... Um, being strapped to that mask. It's something that mom is going to hold to her face, start inhaling probably about 30 seconds before the contraction really starts. And she'll use that mask, hold it to her own face. No one else can hold it but her. And then when the contraction is done, she pulls the mask away. So um, she's kind of in control of that and delivering that nitrous when she feels like she needs it. If she didn't want to use it throughout the entire contraction, she could stop. Um, but as soon as she breathes, out or exhales, that all gets scavenged through the, the system. Well, that's neat, though, that she will sort of be in tune with, I mean, she knows what her body's feeling, and so she knows when she needs this. Absolutely. So. It gives them a sense of control over their labor and how they can control that, that pain or that anxiety through labor. Um, how does nitrous oxide compare with epidural? And epidural, let's, just, let's define how that is done. What are epidurals? So an epidural is an invasive procedure. And basically, mom's getting an injection into her, you know, back with a needle. Um, 
and the epidural really um, has some confining things that'll keep mom in bed because she's not going to be able to get up and walk. Um, and then there's a time where it needs to wear off after her delivery. Because it makes you numb. Yes, it makes you numb so that you okay. don't feel the pain. So an epidural, in a sense, takes the pain away, where nitrous is kind of a, a low intervention, and it's out of the system very, very quickly. Within five minutes, it's out of mom's system. Now, if I remember correctly, with epidurals, there's a certain window for when you can have them given. Um, yes, yep. And so with epidurals, if mom comes in and she's too far along, she may not be a candidate to, to get that epidural. Um, with nitrous, it can be started as early as when mom comes in, even if she's not in active labor. If she has anxiety, she could certainly use that, and she can use it all the way up until she gives birth. Okay. Um, if mom feels that nitrous isn't taking the edge off enough and she's not getting adequate pain control for what she wants, she can certainly opt to have another uh, medication via IV or still get an epidural if she's within that window. So okay. it doesn't prohibit moms from using other alternatives if they decide it's just not doing it for them. So they might come in and try it and, and see. And Yep, we've had moms come in and they may use it for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or they might use it for six hours and then they either deliver or they may opt to get something like Stadol or an epidural. Um, does it wear off faster than an epidural? Because... Yeah, within five minutes, it's out of mom's system. Works very quickly. The onset is extremely quick, and within five minutes, it's out of mom's system. And as soon as the baby takes a breath, it's out of out of the baby's system. Okay. Let's talk about side effects. Are there side effects with, well, for both, for um, epidurals and with the nitrous oxide? Or what are the side effects? Yeah, nitrous oxide is nice in that, okay, yes, moms can get a little bit of uh, nausea, dizziness, um, even vomiting. Um, lightheadedness, um, but that again wears off very, very quickly. So mom, you know, gives it a couple minutes and that side effect, any of those side effects probably are going to be gone. Nausea, vomiting may last a little bit, but we can give moms um, antiemetics that would help with that. Okay. Um, and obviously if mom is using this, we're with mom for the first 15 minutes to monitor for those side effects. Um, we don't leave the room. And if mom opts that it's too much, don't wanna, didn't want to deal with the nausea, she could stop and say, I'm, I'm done. Um, and the epidurals, again, they just have, you know, side effects of immobilizing moms, keeping them in bed. Um, whereas moms with the nitrous, they can get up and walk around. Okay. So, what about safety? Is this... Uh, it's the very safe. It's actually been used in Europe for a very, very long time in other countries for, for childbirth. Um, and it was used in this country a little bit. And I, you know, because of our medicine and the technology changing and advancing, I think that's probably why we've gotten away from it a little bit. But now moms really do want more control and they want a sense of, you know, having a say-so in what their labor looks like. And I saw the American College of Nurse Midwives has said that it's a safe and a reasonable yes, method. for absolutely. Okay. Um, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate Labor and Delivery Nurse Manager, Lori Fegley. Um, so what sort of mom does nitrous oxide appeal to? So it would appeal to moms who really want to come in and have a natural childbirth. They really want low intervention. They may have had previous experiences with healthcare where it causes anxiety in terms of treatments like with needles and whatnot. So those moms that really want to keep it as natural as possible and don't want side effects that linger a long time after the birth that really want to be awake and, you know, there in that moment with the baby when the baby's born. So it does appeal to those moms. If somebody really wants to come in and they, they want to know nothing <laughs> and they just want absolutely no pain, it may not be 
an alternative for Might them that they would choose. Now, are there any um, moms for whom nitrous oxide is not an option? Yes, we do prohibit um, if they have a known vitamin B deficiency. Um, and just because of the action of the nitrous, we would not want to give it to those moms. Um, other contraindications, if they had a pneumothorax or they had some problems with breathing, we would not, we would not give those moms nitrous. Um, what about if they're uh, having twins or preemies? If they're in we don't premature. do it before 35 weeks. Okay. So if somebody came so in and be... preterm, true preterm labor, we would not use it for those moms. Um, the twins, they could come in and deliver twins, and that would not be a contraindication at all for them. But again, it's just if um, breathing problems, pneumothorax, or yeah. So if they have like that. yeah, because it's a gas and gas expands when it's in the body. If they had any problems with that, we would not give it. Okay. So why is this being offered now? Because it's not a new technology, or it's not new, right? No, it's not new. I, I think with the advent of all the advancements with technology, we've had other options being offered to moms. But I think moms are kind of going back to the basics and really wanting more control over their labor experience. And many moms, just because they want to breastfeed or have other goals for their labor and their delivery, they want natural. So a lot of moms are, are going back. And we're learning you know, from other countries like Europe that have been using it for a very, very long time. So there's some women that are including this. Is, are birth plans still in, yes, being they used? Are. So? Yes, yep. We ask mom when they come in what their plan is. And if we can abide by their plan and it's safe for mom and baby, then we try and... Um, you know, give them their experience that they're looking for and what they come in for. Besides nitrous oxide and epidurals, um, are there moms that are doing anything else to help mitigate the pain of labor these days? So moms will still take Lamaze classes or childbirthing classes. And depending on the mom, I think it really is up to mom and what she's looking for. If they want natural, they could take Lamaze classes, and that helps them with all those breathing exercises. And while it does not take the pain away, it certainly can help them focus and get through that really, you know, tenuous part of labor. So it really depends on what mom is looking for. It's her birth, it's her experience, and we want it to be what she wants it to be. All right. Well, um, I wanted to have you tell us about the space at the Family Birth Center on the community campus, because I think some people in the community may not be aware that Upstate offers maternity care now. Um, so what's it like up there? So we have a beautiful space. Our labor and delivery area is private rooms, and all those private rooms have jacuzzi tubs. Mom can labor in there, not deliver, but she can certainly labor in there, and some women love the feeling and that um, weightness, weightlessness of the water, um, and that helps them get through some of the labor. Um, so that's a beautiful space and has been for quite some time. We're undergoing renovations right now for our postpartum side of our, our uh, family birth center, and right now we're getting ready the end of this month to move into our very first part of our new space, which will give us 12 private rooms or suites that allow for mom to have a private bathroom and shower. And it also has a very nice space for families within the actual suite that mom would stay in while she's recovering. Um, pull out sofas for dad or support person that's staying with mom. Beautiful family lounge if they want to have dinner with their family and not be in their room. Um, and then eventually we'll open up the entire space, but that's not slotted until very late in the you know, summer next year. Um, and that will yield a total of 21 private suites on the postpartum For side. Postpartum? And, yes, and a brand new nursery. I was going to ask about the nursery. Now, are the, do the babies stay with the mom or are they in the nursery or is it? Both? Babies stay with their mom. We encourage that, and there are tons of benefits for that. Mom gets to know what the baby's feeding cues are. They get to learn learn about each other and can get into some kind of a routine before they get home, and it just really helps with breastfeeding if that's a goal for mom. 
um, and it's really better for mom and baby to stay together. So those days of the nursery have kind of gone away, and we call it couplet care or rooming in. Couplet care. Okay. Couplet care. Um, now I know uh, obstetrician gynecologists are there. Um, some people have their private physician that help deliver at community, but you also make use of a lot of the midwives, right? Yes, we do. We have midwives and we have laborists. Um, and then we have a few private physician groups that deliver with us. So the laborist is kind of a new concept where mom comes in and she's probably never met that person that's going to help her deliver the baby. Um, so they come in, but it's kind of a new concept out there, and it really does work very well, and it gives private practices a bit of a breather, especially if they have a really busy private practice. So they would, if they weren't able to come in for that delivery, we would be able to deliver the baby without them being there, or it'd be a nurse midwife. And certainly nurses. Um... Absolutely, yes. Um, the nursing care um, at the community campus of Upstate, I think, is a little bit unique. Um, I think our ratios are much better. We're able to really give that one-on-one -on -one care to mom during her labor and really give her the focus and attention that her and her baby need. Interesting. Okay. And so a nurse stays with the mom um, from the time she comes in until she delivers? If Is that's it? what mom wants, yep. Um, otherwise, they're right there and readily available. Um, we have nurse midwives um, on call all the time, so they're available. We have anesthesia that's there 24-7, and then we have a laborist that's there 24-7 as well as a nurse practitioner. So we have all those resources available at the, at the ready. Okay, neat. Well, I appreciate you talking about the nitrous oxide. I think, um, you know, there's been some coverage of this being offered in the community, and it's, it's nice to be able to get the word out about it. Um, so thank you. My guest has been Upstate Labor and Delivery Nurse Manager Lori Fagley. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. This week's checkup from the neck up, Healing the Great Divides, or Thank You, Sweetie. Well, folks, I'm on the six or seven hour train ride from New York City back to Syracuse. I pop in my earbuds for a Mozart, Van Morrison, Louis Armstrong soundtrack, do some paperwork, read some work stuff, then the Sunday New York Times opinion pages. Of course, pundits are punditing about perhaps the most exhausting problems America faces. Politics, race relations, and the politics of race relations. Shortly after, the elegantly dressed elderly woman across the aisle and I take a peek at each other and nod and do how are you's and good thank you's. <laughs> now in the past, I've often avoided bus, train, plane, shoulder bumpers, in favor of nose-to-the-grindstone catching up on to-dos. But recently, I found no matter how much catching up I do, I never get caught up. So I've transformed sometimes into the dreaded chatter guy in the seat next to you <laughs> and found I actually enjoy it, usually. And sometimes... It's also important, enlightening, even transforming. So, lady across the aisle and I chat, and she's warm, engaging, really smart. Quotes from the New York Times pundits is eloquent 
no matter what we talk about, delightful. She was 79, raised in the South by less educated parents who launched her into college, and she became a college prof, no less, if I remember right, a lot like me and my history. She was returning from a visit to her husband's grave in Arlington National Cemetery, which made us both teary. And she was the granddaughter of slaves. Yeah, slaves. Granddaughter. Her parents' parents. Wall. The contrast between this amazing woman of accomplishment and grace and the image of her grandparents under the lash of slavery. Whoa. Somehow, she triumphed. And I saw, in a new way, what slavery and racism have deprived us of. About then, a little six or seven-year-old black boy comes running from the next train car up the aisle, sees us leaning in, chatting, taps the sneaker brakes a tad, and ducks below our line of sight. As he blurs by, she says lovingly, Thank you, sweetie. A few minutes later, when he boomerangs back <laughs> with his snack and ducks again, another loving, thank you, sweetie, giving him sweetness and love to buffer him from the racism still poisoning the air we breathe. Yeah, exactly right. Young and old, black and white, we need to chat with our neighbors and meet kindness with kindness to heal the great divides. I'm Rich O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, why your infant needs daily tummy time. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The American Academy of Pediatrics says babies need to be placed to sleep on their backs to reduce the risk of sudden infant death syndrome during the first year of life. But supervised playtime on the tummy every day is recommended for developmental reasons. So here to talk about this is Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy, Dr. Erin Wentz. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's talk, what, what is tummy time? So tummy time is the deliberate placement of the baby on his or her tummy for exercise and developmental reasons. And it's supervised? It is supervised, and it's when baby is awake. Okay, and when baby's awake, and when, starting at what age? 
So you really want to start tummy time as soon as the baby is born, as long as they're medically stable. And early tummy time can be done, for example, on the parent's chest because the baby is most familiar and most comfortable around their parent. So by placing them on their chest, they can smell their parent, they can hear their parent when they lift their head up, they're close enough to see their parent. So that's a really good way to start nice and early. And this is when they're starting to learn to lift their head, Mm -hmm. right? So very early. Yep, and so for example, when a baby's first born, they're often placed directly on the chest of their parent, their mother. And that's a great way to continue. The other thing about that is that the parent can um, sit up, sit more upright or lay back progressively more to make it a little bit more harder um, for the infant. So why is this important for babies? So not only is it important to strengthen the extensor muscles of the neck and the trunk and to help to develop the shoulder girdle, but it's also very important because it promotes a vantage point that stimulates environmental exploration. And by looking and then eventually exploring our environment and interacting with objects in our environment, that's how babies learn. So for example, if they're placed on their backs, we have lots of great positioners these days to put our babies in, but most of them keep the baby on their back. So when they're on their back, they're looking up at the ceiling. And in our gravitational system, uh, ceiling exploration is not really feasible. So in order to explore our environment, we need to be able to see it and be motivated to explore it. So by placing the baby on on their tummies, they can see what's around them and that motivates them to want to explore and interact, and that prompts learning, and, amongst other things. Okay, amongst other things. I, it, it, I can see where motor development, um, you know, it kind of makes sense, but it, that's tied to social and like, other exactly, things, right? Exactly, you're exactly right. So, for example, if an infant is on their tummy peering, um, viewing what's near them, so let's say they see a really cool rattle not too far in front of them. So that prompts them to figure out what they need to do with their body to obtain that rattle, And that is um, developing their cognitive abilities. So they're problem solving. They're learning to persevere and stick with a task until they achieve it. Then once they obtain the rattle, then they want to talk about it in their way, of course. But they want to interact with those that they're most familiar with. So that promotes not only their language development, but their social development. So if we can't explore our environment and interact with objects, then that's how the other systems are negatively impacted by lack of motor development. Oh, that's interesting. Neat. Well, um, how much tummy time is needed? So that's kind of where um, the research has um, not stopped, but stagnated a little bit. We know the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that tummy time be done every day for developmental reasons, as you described at the beginning, but we they don't give a specific dosage requirement. Mm-hmm. So in my earliest work, I tasked families that participated in the study to do 90 minutes, accumulate 90 minutes over the course of the day. Not a solid 90 no, no, minutes, no. but a Yeah, there's not a lot of babies that could do okay. 90 minutes, but that was really b- based on very um, scant research available at that time on how much was enough. We do know that babies that do more do better, but we just, we don't have um, a specific amount as 
of tummy time that should be done that we're recommending yet. So that's actually what my current study is. Okay. So what advice do you give for new parents now? I mean, if they uh, try tummy time with their baby, um, will the baby tell them when they're done? <laughs> Pretty much. That's really? a really good question. So back in the day before babies slept on their, uh, their tummy, I mean on their backs, they slept on their tummy. So, for example, when my kids who are older um, – were born, my doctor advised me to put them on their tummies to sleep. So tummy time wasn't a thing then because they were used to being on their tummies from the beginning. So now with these very important sleep recommendations, and they have done a fabulous job of dramatically reducing the incidence of SIDS. Um, so the, the sleep recommendations need to stay in place, but what's happened is that parents are, are a little bit hesitant to put their babies on their tummies because of this sort of in the back of their mind notion of sudden infant death syndrome, even though awake time on the tummy is not a, is not a risk factor for SIDS. And because baby's not used to being on their tummy from the beginning, when they are placed on their tummy, it's hard for them and they get mad and complain like we do. Like if, if I said to you, Amber, I want you to do 100 push-ups, like you do a few and you'd be like, okay, Aaron, I'm done. <laughs> right. So it's, that's a little bit analogous. Um, so the advice would be to start right away at first medical stability and to do some of that chest tummy time, um, to make it less, um, noxious okay. <laughs> and to make, and to, so it's, it needs to be a gradual buildup because as they get stronger, it gets easier as they see the benefit because their, their vision's coming into play and they're starting to see things that they want to, um, get involved with, then they're going to be more and more motivated. So that's why it's an accumulation and you're exactly right. Baby will start to complain when they've had enough. Um, so you can use your baby's cues, but you want to try to accumulate, um, what we're thinking now, um, is around 60 minutes until the time at which your baby can transition in and out of sitting independently, because then they can put themselves in and out. They can do their own tummy. Yeah. So then you don't have to impose it. And that's, that's when everything is really rosy. Well, do you look, um, do you tell parents to kind of look at this as pl- playtime where they can be down on the floor too? And or? that's a great way um, to um, get everybody involved and to help baby buy in a little bit more. So if, if siblings are on the floor, if mom and dad are on the floor and you're right there um, looking at each other and um, engaging in things that are, are already fun, singing, um, manipul- fun manipulatives, then, um, again, you're doing a better cell job for, the, for baby to want to stick with the activity. You can also intersperse um, rhythmic movement, music, mirrors, um, all kinds of things to make it a little bit more palatable in the early stages. But I think parents will find if they keep it um, top of mind and really kind of persevere in those early days when, when baby may be pushing back a little bit, that they'll find that, that it pays off because their baby then is self-motivated to be in this position and it gets easier and easier. So if baby initially is not seeming very interested, (laughs) stick with it. Definitely stick with it and try to, you know, do those um, manageable amounts of time and to do all the fun things they know to do, singing, you know, rhythmic movement. They Again, doing as much on their chest as they need to to kind of get through that first period. 
Well, now you've been involved in researching um, tummy time. Are there things that you've learned from it already? And then I also want to ask you about the project that you're getting started on. Sure, sure. So my initial work, um, I looked at the impact of this 90 minutes accumulation of tummy time um, on both a cohort of infants that were typically developing and in a cohort of infants with Down syndrome. Because um, as a pediatric physical therapist, I work a lot with children with developmental disabilities. Um, and what we found in both cohorts was that the, mo the motor developmental trajectory of babies that did this sort of systematic tummy time and those that didn't, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that they didn't do any tummy time. It just means that they weren't in this sort of systematic, really trying for this 90 minutes every day where it was top of mind. Um, their motor trajectories were significantly different for both cohorts of infants. Additionally, the infants with um, typical development had a significantly different body composition trajectory. So what's, what we're currently thinking is that babies that don't do enough tummy time, not only uh, will their motor development um, be delayed, but they um, are at a higher risk for obesity because they're, in, they're positioned more in these sort of passive positions or, or positions that don't promote activity. Mm. And in terms of our physical activity levels, those habits are actually formed in infancy. And those habits that we form in infancy tend to stick with us through childhood, through adolescence, and into adulthood. Wow. So it really underlines the importance of... Um, promoting good habits very, 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 very early, like as soon as possible. So that's another reason why it's really important. So tell me about the study that you've got underway now, because you're looking for people to yes, sign up. Yes, I would love to have um, some more families participate. So we're um, currently looking at, a, at recruiting a large normative sample. So that would be infants with typical development that are between zero and eight weeks of age when they enter the study. And they um, we don't want them um, to be more than uh, born earlier than 37 weeks gestation because then we introduce prematurity perhaps into the equation and we want to um, just look at the impacts of tummy time without the prematurity effect okay. on top of that. Okay. Um, and what we do is we um, randomize them into one of three dosage groups. The first dosage group is zero to 30 minutes. The second dosage group is 31 to 60 minutes, and the third dosage group is 61 minutes and above. And we ask the families to do their best to accumulate that much deliberate tummy time when baby is awake each day from the time that they enter the study until the time that the baby can independently transition in and out of sitting. And then we follow them with a home visit from study entry through age 18 months. And we're looking to develop that longitudinal motor trajectory. So how is a baby that's doing each of these three dosage developing? Because what we want to do is come then at the end, compare those, the curves from each of the groups. And that way we can get a better idea of how much tummy time we should be recommending. I really feel like in the, in the absence of specific recommendations, Families don't know when to begin. They don't know how much to do. What's a lot to me might be very different to you. So if I say, Amber, you and your baby do 
do some tummy time every day, you might be going, oh, I ro I'm a rock star. Like I'm doing 10 minutes every day where, you know, me having raised my babies a while ago, I might be thinking, oh, she's probably going to do at least 60 minutes. So that's why I think it's very important to have very specific guidelines. Well, and to find out too, is any is it detrimental to do too much? No, okay. no. There's no there's no there's no reason that awake tummy time would have negative effects on a baby. No okay. known reasons. Yeah. Interesting. So people can get involved in this or find more information by sending an email to your email address, which is w e n t z e. Uh, at upstate.edu, correct? Yep, that's, that's the best, best way. way to reach you? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, my guest has been Upstate Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy, Dr. Aaron Wentz. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. There are an infinite number of ways to describe aging. Middle age can make us serious. Old age can make us nervous. Eric Mahan Howd, professor of professional and technical writing at Ithaca College, tackles the first hurdle in his poem called Middle Age. The horse buckles at the wall of flame, nostrils flare at the promise of sunset. The rider tries to balance bareback as lightning offers a branch. His work was nearly done before the fire burnt all his fields, turned his garden to ash, before the back bucked him and abandoned him. Jack Hopper, a two-term poet laureate of Tompkins County, takes on old age in his lovely meditation called Autumn of the Matriarch. The aged lady, my mother, often said without I thought a wisp of the wistful as she strode behind her wheelchair on a morning walk in spring, nothing's moving, there's no one on the street. So what? People at work, most children in school, it seemed to me then. Much more of what she really meant comes home this still September evening, years after her final sit-down ride around town. Trees stiff as stilts, leaves dipping or descending, distant without whisper or wave. No zephyr moves through fresh-mown grass, lying in braids of green. Now I sense the elders' old lament about their vanished friends, my mother's meaning as she keened, there's no one on the street. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. 
Next week, we'll hear from a doctor of physical therapy about the safest ways to use modern electronic devices. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.